Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Christina Bellantoni. Christina Bellantoni is the Assistant Managing Editor, Politics, at the Los Angeles Times. She previously spent 12 years covering politics in Washington as Editor-in-Chief of Roll Call and Political Editor at PBS NewsHour. She has covered the White House, Congress, three presidential campaigns, and the Virginia State House. She has also served as Vice President of the Board of the Washington Press Club Foundation. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Ms. Christina Bellantoni. Thank you, and uh, keep those hands ready because we're going to be giving a warm welcome to our panel as well. I'm really lucky to have such an esteemed panel and glad to be here, and I think it's going to be a good conversation. In the green room, we mostly talked about our children, but um, I think we're going to have a lot of fun talking about um, the important conversation in politics right now. Um, what is the future of the Republican Party, effectively? And what's next? And what does that mean for Democrats? And sort of those bigger picture political questions that so many people are engaged in now more than ever. So uh, appreciate everybody being here. So first, um, this is in no particular order. I'm going to start with Leslie Graves, who is the publisher of Balladopedia, the Encyclopedia of American Politics. She founded the organization to equip everyday citizens with accurate and objective information about elections and politics. Admirable cause. You probably read a lot of uh, Mike Madrid's name in the Los Angeles Times because he's a political consultant based in Sacramento at Grassroots Lab, and he served as the political director for the California Republican Party and is well known in this state, uh, as is everybody on the panel. Cassandra. Okay. Thank you. Here to my right is Cassandra Pai. She's a public affairs strategist and the board president for California Women Lead. She was also the deputy chief of staff to Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor and political director for the California Chamber of Commerce. Please give her a warm welcome. And as you know, we will be taking questions after, so um, let's engage in a wonderful discussion, starting with the premise of this conversation. I'm asking each of you, is the Republican Party dead? Cassandra. Well, since you asked the question, <laughs> um, it depends on where. where. Um, I, generally, I think one has probably got the notion that there's at least a nail or two in the coffin in California um, because the numbers are so low. And I've got a numbers guy next to me, so I'll, I'll, I'll have him cheat, help me cheat. Um, when I need to. Numbers are low, decline to state voters are on the rise, uh, Dems are kind of holding. Uh, my view at the state level is that if the party is in a position to mount a successful campaign for a statewide office at this point of any kind, um, I, probably not governor, but maybe, but certainly any statewide office, I tend to think that will just help the, help the brand and sort of balance out some of what comes from Washington and, and, and stops at our borders. Um, but that's going to take quite a few things, and I'm certainly curious to hear um, my friend's comments uh, and reaction to this comment. You know, I think it'll take a, a great candidate. Um, it'll take a lot of cash. Um, it'll take some good timing and a little bit of luck. Um, the last race that I worked on was Duff Sundheim's campaign for U.S. Senate. Um, Duff came in third but I like to tell him that he at least won the Republican primary. <laughs> um, 
So I think he came in with about seven points. But if there had been just Duff on the ballot, for example, I think the numbers would have been around 22 or 23 percent. And he'd have come in second place ahead of Sanchez, and you may have had a race on your hands. Um, but 2016 was 2016. So it, he did that with great messaging. He did that going out to talking to women's groups. I could go on ad nauseum about how it happened. But a lot of things would have to happen for us to get a statewide a, a candidate that's viable statewide. And um, and then I think there's a chance. I'm going to leave Nat stop talking and leave national to my friends. And come back to it. Leslie. Oh, well, I could answer that question by saying that I'm giving a talk in um, Dallas next week on the title of Is the Democratic Party Dead? Um, <laughs> except I would be making that up because that's not really happening. But, <laughs> but it could happen. So the <clears throat> Republican Party is enjoying um, an extraordinary amount of electoral success right now. Um, they have 34 governorships as of a week ago. There are over two dozen states where the governor is a Republican, the state senate is controlled by the Republican Party, and the state house is, we call that a trifecta. Um, and they are passing legislation in those states, get, achieving a lot of what the Republican Party has cherished and wanted to do for years if they had the reins of power at the state level. Um, the, uh, one, the Republican Party is struggling in, in a lot of areas, right? But it's probably struggling less than the Democratic Party. So you could say it's the party that's in the most trouble except for the other one. <laughs> Fair enough. Mike? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I can... I, I remember um, on November 5th or 6th, I had probably a dozen panels, not unlike this one, with the exact same title as how can the Republican Party possibly come back from the debacle of the November elections? And then, of course, we all woke up and, and things changed out, turned out to be very dramatically different than I think most of us uh, anticipated. Uh, myself, certainly. I was as surprised as anybody, I think, in this room. Um, but I think, I think the point that, you're, you, that was brought up is, is an accurate one. We're at a time when both parties are dealing with um, very serious cleavages in their base. And they don't tend to be necessarily just linear with you know, moderates and progressives or moderates and conservatives. The populist dynamic that is driving both parties is really across the spectrum. And there's really four or five different factions in each party. Um, so the fact that, that the Republican Party stands today, and, and frankly, electorally, its strongest position nationally in, in, in its entire history. I mean, this is going back to, to Lincoln's days. The, the Republican Party has never been stronger where it is weak, it is exceptionally weak. And California is one of those places. And I think Cassandra articulated very well the, <laughs> the many things that would have to break right for there to possibly be a chance for things to change in California. Um, and a lot of that, you know, we can talk about that through the course of the evening, but a lot of that has to do with this natural sorting that people are going through. It's not just a gerrymandering and, and you know, partisan gamesmanship. It really has a lot to do, and I think we need to be mindful as, as citizens of this country, not just Republicans and Democrats, but we're going through something very extraordinary right now. And we are seeing, uh, a, I don't want to say a collapse, but a, certainly a transformation of the two-party system. I don't believe we're going to look at the two parties in 10 years hence and say, you know, things didn't change much. I think they're changing extraordinarily fast. I think we're trying to figure out what that means 
And right now we're kind of stuck in this institutionalized two-party system that is creating a lot of angst, a lot of fear, a lot of anger on both sides. And it's not healthy, but I also believe that um, you know, we're a pretty resilient society, we're a pretty resilient democracy, and I think we're going to figure this out. So one of the words that no one has uttered yet, uh, I guess I will be the first to say President Trump, because it is an interesting question. He is a Republican. He won the presidency with an R next to his name on the ballot. But when you hear him speak, one of the things that's very striking to me is he doesn't say we need to do blank as the Republican Party or we're trying to do something. He says they. Those guys, you know, particularly his battle right now as we're, as we're talking with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who in theory would be his closest ally trying to get his agenda passed on Capitol Hill. So I think the question also translates to, is Trump representative of the Republican Party? And I'll come back to Mike on that. Well, I think he is now. Um, now, I will say that that is, um, for somebody who spent 25 years, all of my adult life working in Republican politics, he looks nothing like the uh, conservative movement in the conservative party that I joined. I will say this, I don't believe Donald Trump is a conservative. He may be a Republican, but increasingly a conservative and Republican are two different things. And that really is the largest schism between uh, the, the factions in the party at this point in time. You have to remember that the, the president, Donald Trump, was elected really running against the base of the party in many ways. Um, and his punching bags weren't just Hillary Clinton, although for Democrats it probably felt like that. I mean, he was running against Paul Ryan. He was taking the gloves off with, you know, Ted Cruz and taking the gloves off with, with, with you know, very strong conservatives. He was running against everything. And so when he speaks and says words like they, he means it. I don't think he has an affinity or loyalty to the Republican Party any more than it serves what he's trying to accomplish. And I still don't know exactly what that is. Um, and, and that unease, I think, has created a, a wide segment of the Republican Party that uh, doesn't have a home. Um, I'm, I'm a Republican, and as we were sharing uh, in, in the, the green room, in large part, and this is important, because I think a lot of us can say this, certainly in this country today, I'm a Republican because I know I'm not a Democrat. And I know there's a lot of Democrats who can say, I'm a Democrat because I know I'm not a Republican. There are fewer and fewer people who can identify what they're for. We are increasingly a society that is defining who we are and our intensities by what we are against. And I think Donald Trump is a, is a, is a, um, he's a living embodiment of that sentiment. Can I jump in here? Please. Right. Who does Donald Trump represent? I think we could argue that he represents the voters in 206 counties, that um, there, there are roughly 3,100 counties in our country, and in 206 of them, voted for Barack Obama in 2008, they voted for Barack Obama in 2012, and they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. 206 counties did that. Um, I believe that Donald Trump and his campaign saw that that was a possibility, and that those people who are pivot voters are who Donald Trump is representing. He's, that's who he's representing. And to, just to add to what you're saying, there's a really interesting constituency in the population called the double haters. And those are the people who, um, because we're Americans, right? So um, the, uh, they, they hate Donald Trump, and who do they hate even more? They, on November 8th, they hated Hillary just a little bit more, and they voted for Donald Trump. And I don't think that that dynamic has been lost. So going into November 2018, when they go into the voting booth, um, I don't 
uh, you know, the Democratic Party, the leaders of the Democratic Party are striving mightily right now and through some of the special elections and the gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and Virginia this year to figure out a way to get some of those kinds of voters back in the Democratic aisle. So there's a lot of experimentation going on. But right now, the dynamic of double-hating favoring the Republican candidate is still in force. So I have to, again, I'm here to keep it, keep it honest for us Californians, and I, I have to ask if we're ahead of the curve again <laughs> with decline to state voters, yeah. non, non-party preference voters being on the rise. Are those some of the people, not all, but are those some of the people that can't be a Republican but they can't be a Democrat? I think there's no question. And I think the way it manifests itself in California is not in the registration numbers, although that's a part of it. It's in low turnout. Is If you don't have a message, and the Democrats are suffering from extraordinarily huge, unprecedented turnout problems, these are voters who don't like Republicans, but they're they're not motivated by the Democratic Party. They're double haters in reverse. They're like, I really don't like the Republicans. <laughs> double apathies. Double apathies, <laughs> yeah. right? I, I, I guess I'm a Democrat because I really don't like the Republicans, but I, I, I really don't want to show up and vote for these folks. Okay, so then the other one I want to ask about are millennials. Yeah. And um, because I'm getting old, I'm older than Michael, I have to read this. I'm just getting remember Barely. it. Yeah, I know, I know, but still. Um, on the whole approve, disapprove, rating millennials uh or not millennials sorry 18 to 34 year olds 19 percent approval 67 percent disapproval of the president um nationally nationally you know pretty much everybody else is in the 40s and up so the other problem to your point about the way this breaking a number of ways the other problem that i think the party has got is whether or not he turns his presidency turns off a block of voters who are making their minds up about what party they're going to belong to and will probably belong to, this was my case, you know, I switched parties in my early 20s and I stayed. And that's what happens with a lot of younger voters. We'll see. When Howard Dean was chairman of the Democratic National Committee, he used to go around saying all of the time, if you can get a voter to vote for the same party for three elections in a row, you will have them for life. Mm. And so Barack Obama captured two-thirds of that, and a lot of those voters not only didn't stick with the Democratic Party, but just got so disgusted with politics. And that sort of feeds into this, you you touched on this a little bit, Mike, but I feel like we've had just anti-establishment, anti-establishment, we want change election after change election at the national level. Um, You know, you saw parties just get swept out of power very quickly that hadn't happened in modern time up until this last couple of decades or this last couple of years. So, you know, could there be another one? Have we seen enough change or are people just genuinely unhappy with what the establishment is doing at their national government? Uh, Yeah, look, I don't think it's unhappy. I think they don't believe in it anymore. And whether you're on the right or on the left, I think we have so lost faith in all, most of our institutions, not all, but, but, but most, whether it's religious institutions or civic institutions, our political institutions, our financial institutions, I mean, we can go on and on. You know, I, I, I love some of the language that you hear on the left where if you say big anything, it's, it's evil, right? It's big oil, big it's oil. big plastic, it's big, big water, big water <laughs> right? whatever it is. And, and there's a reason for that, and that's not to, that's not to, to, to yeah, that's something we need to listen to. What, what is, people are saying is we don't, la- we, we, don't, we don't trust our institutions. And I say it, it manifests itself on the left. On the right, it's just kind of, you know, angry 
tweets, right? There's just this, there's anger on both sides and it's a frustration right. and it's a complete loss of confidence in where we are at. I'll give you a couple of other uh, real brief examples. You know, the economy on paper, you keep hearing things are doing really well. In all of the polling, we're seeing issues like crime, homelessness, poverty, in California rising to the top. Look, we just passed, you, you all just passed this enormous homelessness tax, right? A homelessness tax in Los Angeles County. I mean, th that's kind of raising the white flag. It's basically saying, we don't know what to do anymore. Let's just, let's just throw some money at it and try and take care of this problem. And I say that because when you lose confidence in your institutions, you, you also lose, and I think we're seeing in the Republican Party, to, to your point, it's easier to run against the whole thing and rail against it without any sort of solutions. Just to clarify, I mean, and I'm sure you would agree with me, people yeah. lost confidence in the institutions because the institutions aren't delivering. Correct. And yeah. that has not changed. No, that's and right. therefore, there will continue to be a series of change elections. Yeah. Yeah. And we um, had a conversation yeah. when we right. were talking about our kids about real life problems. Right. Yeah, I, I was uh, around during the Vietnam War. And at that time, everybody, every family in America knew at least one other family mm -hmm. who had lost a son in, that, in Vietnam. Uh, my family knew many families that had lost sons in, in the war. Um, now, every family in America knows other families that are struggling in really deep, serious ways Correct. that were not the case 10 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, people are seeing it in their neighborhood, they're seeing it in their family, they're seeing it in their church, they're seeing a lot of struggle that just wasn't as widespread as it was 20 years ago. And until that changes, you will see change elections. When you say they think their government isn't working for them, I mean, is that like the do-nothing Congress? Like they're not passing enough bills? Or is it frustration they're not repealing the Affordable Care Act? Or, or like, what specifically are people You can talk about with? that. I mean, what the national media wants to do is look at the specific dysfunctions that are so much kind of fun to look at all day long and coming out of Washington, D.C. That's, that's interesting for us, right? Um, the people who go and vote in November, they're not basing their vote on that. They're basing their vote on lived life on, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And, and until that changes, they don't really care what kind of games are being played in Washington, D.C. Let me, let me add a, a point to that because it's important. About five years ago, we started asking a question in our polling. We knew that people didn't trust politicians to do the right thing. Democrats were the same as Republicans. No one believes that they're going to do the right thing. But we started to ask the question, do you think that uh, our government is capable of solving the problems? Hmm. And overwhelmingly, people were saying no. So it's not, it, it's not that people, the, you're right, what's driven a lot of that is the function of, of, of people seeing their, the dysfunction between the two parties and the fighting and the acrimony and the do-nothings and then not listening to the other side. And I, that's the height of hypocrisy to me is that, you know, having one side say, well, you don't even invite us in the room to talk about it. And then the other ones, you know, when they'll take over, they say the exact same thing, right? It's just this, this tennis match going back and forth that, that everyone is smart enough to see is it's a ruse by both parties. But when you believe that it's not capable, even if, even if we started to work together, can government solve these problems? Overwhelmingly, people are saying no. Right, and the millennials, I'm going to call them the Uber voters, yep. right? So they're, they're choosing not to vote. Why? Because whether a 25-year-old is a Tensaline Democratic or Tensaline Republican, all of them can get together and do get together and look at how their life has been made better by things like Uber or 
you know, all, the, all of them are, are by different ways you can clean up your house and tidy it up so that you can have a nicer evening. They're, they are looking for ways to hack their life that, make, that work for making your life better today, next week, and they work. So unlike our generation, which believed that there was one way to make the world a better place, and that was get involved in government, none of them believe that anymore. And they have some reason to not believe that. So they're, they're just getting disaffiliated with government as, as the solution to our problems. And to close that out, he's mm -hmm. not making it better. He, President Trump. Correct. Yeah. So for a long time, and we haven't, to get back to the Republican Party, for so many years you would hear this, you know, well, there's social conservatives, and then there's people that say, you know, don't worry about what's going on in the bedroom um, in the Republican Party. And that, that was a real schism, and the social conservatives seem to be having less and less pull within the party, particularly here in California, but especially uh, when it came to Republican presidential primaries. I mean, you saw the sort of... Um, Rick Santorum's, Mike Huckabee's of the world, like not doing as well outside of some of the early voting states. But what is that split now? Because and we haven't even mentioned social issues here. There are different type of social issues. There are inequality, there are poverty, there are people feeling like they can't get ahead and not abortion and gay marriage in the same way that you were talking about them even you know 12 years ago. It's the economy. But it's more than the economy, stupid. It's some of the things we just talked about. It's real life issues that government, either the public sector or the private sector, should be addressing. It's stuff that we look at every day. It's homelessness. If someone agrees to pass a tax overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, to, to resolve a homelessness issue in this area, that tells you people are really focused on it. It's real people stuff, and it really isn't, I repeat it, it's not just the economy stupid. It's the fallout from 2009, it's not having, it's all the data we know, not having a life that's going to be better, than my parents. It's not having, it's not moving out of the home, which is happening to some young people. It's real life stuff that the economy has led to um, that no one seems to be resolving, and I dare say even talking about all that much. Including record high rates of incarceration for black and brown men. Which we talked about this morning. Right, too. which destroys yep. the opportunity for those families to get ahead financially. One thing, I'd, uh, an observation, and it, do you remember, it wasn't that long ago, the Republican primary, which looked like this kind of clown car with 17 different candidates, <laughs> right? The fascinating thing about that huge primary is every one of those candidates really represented a different and unique sliver of the conservative coalition. Think about it for a second. You had Rand Paul, who was a libertarian. You had Rick Santorum, who was uh, you know, kind of the social conservative. You had, you had uh, Jeb Bush, who was the establishment. You had Marco Rubio, who was the emerging demographic savior of the Republican Party. You had, and on and on and on, every one of those was a yeah. legitimate constituency. I mean, there's some overlap, of course, but I think in many ways, and then Donald Trump, and, and right? Who, and Ben Carson. And Ben Carson, ben sorry, Carson. I forgot about Ben Carson. <laughs> Um, HUD Secretary Ben Carson. I wonder who you were voting for, Cassandra. Um, um, I, I think in many ways the Democratic Party needs to go through that same process, and I think it's going to. Um, it's going, you're already seeing it line up. You know, and, um, There's you know, 20 potential candidates that are going to be running or opening up committees for president in 2020 in the next. And uh, one Maryland congressman who's already one in. One Maryland John congressman already in, right? You're going to see the same thing on display, but what's going to be fascinating about it is it's not just going to be a rush to be like, I want to be president. They are legitimately going to be speaking to a different segment of the center left or far left base. And that's important because it really does speak to the segmentation, the fragmentation of our society. 
I believe, and for those of you who remember Ross Perot and George Bush and Bill Clinton, when we were talking about, do we really need a two-party system? Folks, we're seeing the two-party system come apart. That's what is happening. And if you thought it was going to happen in just one, one fell swoop, you're wrong. It's a process. It is coming apart. And that doesn't mean, you know, Armageddon, well, it might be a different reason why Armageddon's coming, but that's not the reason what Armageddon's about. What I mean is we're going to dramatically change the way representative government looks like. I believe that. And I don't know if it's going to be a European system. I don't know if we're going to excuse me, establish a center. But what I do know is it's going to be very, very different than what we have experienced before as Americans. You know, I agree with all that. On the other hand, there are some things that are just going to be traditional in November of 2018. Um, the national spotlight in terms of whether the United States House will stay in Republican hands mm -hmm. or go into Democratic hands um, will be significantly determined in seven U.S. House races here in, here California. in <laughs> California. Yeah. And um, how are those elections going to be run? They're going to be run the same way they always have been. It's going to be knocking on doors. It's going to be regular politics, regular Get everything. Get out the base. Yep. Mm -hmm. Get out the base. Yep. A lot of the same candidates. Yep. And it, that's exactly right. So one of the things that's interesting is that we all think that voters are demanding change and looking for change. There's very, very little turnover um, in, in the United mm -hmm. States Congress at the same time that we're demanding change. P people effectively will say, I hate Congress, or I think they all should be thrown out, except my congressman's just fine, even if they can't name their congressman, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that they say I, that anymore. I don't think they say that anymore. I think, I think they did that in the 1990s. Yeah. I think what is happening now is, if anybody's familiar with the book, The Big, the big Sort, not The Big Short, The Big Sort, mm -hmm where people are self-segregating into their own bubbles. It's not just a social media phenomenon, it's right. literally a geographic phenomenon. And a redistricting phenomenon. Much less so, <laughs> much, much less so. Uh, and the data bears that out, is okay. people are, 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 are self-selecting the communities that they want to live in, and it has been going on for 20, 30 years, and it's gotten to the point now where people aren't saying it's everybody, all the congressmen and members are bad it's my, it, except for mine. They're literally afraid of the best motivator to keep those seven seats is Nancy Pelosi. Mm -hmm. That's that of as unhappy as they may be with the current administration, as as angry as they are at Congress of their own party, and they are. When you say, "Okay, do you want Nancy Pelosi to be speaker?" It's like, "No, no, 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 no," and they'll retrench back into their own corners and go back and vote for the the party line, the party ticket. And there are very, very few split ticket voters anymore. Extremely few, like low single digits few. So what happens in that environment is you have to focus on turnout. You have to get your people to the polls. And the best motivators for that, love it or hate it, is fear and anger. So if you're watching Fox News or MSNBC, stop, because it's just junk food for your brain that is just giving you as motivated and angry and, and fearful as they possibly can. And read the because, LA Times instead. Yeah, read, read yeah, <laughs> LA Times. That is literally, those are literally turnout mechanisms to drive the base to the polls. That's what's going on. So we're going to talk a little bit more about national politics, but I will use that as a transition to California for a second here. So these seven Republican seats that we're talking about, so a good number of them are in Orange County, mm -hmm. which for the first time, back to Democrat for president and more than 40 years and Hillary Clinton was able to win huge you know cha big change but most of the Republicans did just fine in the re-election race I was just looking at the numbers yesterday in many cases you know they outran Trump in their districts so 
was this a fluke in Orange County? I mean, you guys looked at these numbers mm-hmm. um, and just Republicans didn't show up because they didn't like Trump. They didn't feel like Trump was their Republican Party. They weren't as motivated or because of that double hate situation, you know, Hillary Clinton, the people that liked her showed up, but everybody else just stayed home. Like, is there an opportunity in those numbers for Democrats right now? Well, I want Mike to back me up on this, but my recollection is that just before 16, the Dems at the state level invested heavily in registering people, registering Democrats. And so, and those seven members still want, those seven Republicans still won their seats. The closest one was ISA, which was about 1,600 votes. I think the second, second closest was Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we talked amongst ourselves um, prior to coming out, I think I tend to think at a minimum those are the only two at risk, and I, I'm not even sure I think Knight is. I, I think we probably disagree there. They're, they're candidates who are, who, who are strong. They're candidates who can raise money. Um, Mimi's raising money. Mimi Walters is raising money like crazy. Um, they've been around the block a few times. Um, she, I think, is probably the closest to a freshman. She's on her second term. I mean, they have a lot of things going for them. Um, and I would go back to the theme of a, of a lot of what we've already talked about. Uh, Democrat, Democrats don't necessarily have a great message to run on um, up against seven candidates that have got that much going for them, and in, in, including the power of incumbency. Yeah. And uh, we're referring to it. Congressman Daryl Issa, um, who represents, uh, he's from Vista, it's like San Diego and parts mm-hmm. of Orange County, and then Mimi Walters, who's in like the Irvine area. Laguna Hills, yeah. 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 And um, Steve Knight, who's in Palmdale, Lancaster. Right. Just to clarify, those seven Republicans already won once when Trump was at the top of the ticket. Sure. Right. So the idea that that some people might have that surely November 2018 is just going to be brutal for them because Trump is in the White House is not a um, pro- probably not the best way to analyze their odds next year. Yeah. Let me be. A, I'm gonna be a little bit of a data nerd here too. So so follow me. Um, you asked the question as to whether or not this was anomalous or not. We have a term that we have historically called the undervote. And what the undervote is, is when people go in and they show up and they vote for their Republican or Democrat at the top of the ticket, mm-hmm. and then they stop voting down ticket because they don't know who their Congress member is or their assembly member, or their senator or their supervisor. That phenomenon is called the undervote. What we saw for the first time, and we don't have a term for it, is people were not voting for the Republican, but they were voting down ticket. Where I think people misunderstand that data point is, that's a very strong indicator that the Republican base is secure. That's not a weakness. And what you're seeing is the National Democratic Party going, Hillary won these districts, they're vulnerable. No, it's saying the exact opposite, in my opinion. In 2016, let me give you another data point. 2016 was the first presidential year since 2000 where no Republican members of Congress in California lost their seat at a time when their candidate did worse at any time since Franklin Delano Roosevelt run for his last re-election. What that tells us, as people who do this for a living, is the Republican base is very, very secure. Even if it doesn't like Donald Trump, it ain't going anywhere. They're showing up and they're voting for their party because of their fear of what the alternative is. Mm And so when you look at it from that perspective and understand that turnout will be even lower, much probably considerably lower in the off cycle, most of those Republicans are in pretty good shape. There are two that I, I, I'm not saying that the, all seven will hold. I think the odds are they will. 
But if, if, we are, if Republicans are going to lose seats, the two that give me the most concern are ISA and Knight, which were not even on the radar prior to 2016. And this is important. And the reason why is those districts have the highest level of college-educated, high-income Republican earners. That is not the Republican base anymore. Let's be mindful of another major change here. When I was a younger person running campaigns, the Republican Party was the party of rich, old, white people. Folks, that is now the Democratic Party. The Republican Party, think about that. It's absolutely true. The Republican Party is a party of poor white people now and working class folks. And where those pockets of people still exist, it's the fastest shrinking demographic in California. It's the fastest shrinking demographic nationally, by the way, but especially in California, the Republican Party is strong and it's holding. And I, my strong suspicion is it will continue in not only in those seven districts, but those are the two ones that I think you really do need to watch. So let me put one on your radar that's just the opposite, and that's where I live, and that's the Ami, Ami Barra seat, yeah. which was also, California which was ground zero. Congressional mm -hmm. district, right? Yeah. yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Ground Sacramento. zero. Spent the most on both sides. Also very close result. Very mm -hmm. close result. And Andrew Grant is um, running on the Republican side. Um, military background, um, good-looking, engaging, sort of central casting um, for a congressional candidate. And I think maybe, my opinion, and both guys who ran before are friends, but I tend to think this is probably the strongest candidate that Republicans have put up Stronger against Stronger Sheriff Jones. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yes. Now, and you know, just allow us to indulge a little bit more on California just for a second. You alluded to all of the Democrats running, right? You've got strong incumbents, and the way California's system is with the top two primary, you're going to have a ballot that will have the member of Congress on it. Maybe there will be a Republican or two that's trying to challenge them from the right. Um, potentially, there's a couple. There's one running in Rohrabacher's district, um, Congressman Dana, Dana Rohrabacher in, in Orange County, and a few others, but none of them will be. Right. Uh, financially stable McClintock, compared to has got an incumbent. Right. But the Democrats, there's in some cases more than a dozen candidates running. So they're all going to appear on the ballot. Mm -hmm. And then if you're a voter, you know, you pick one mm -hmm. and then whoever's the top two advance to the general. So you don't know which candidate is going to emerge as the strong one. And fundraising is important. There's all kinds of other elements that are important. But in that race, that's going to be really interesting because that will determine a lot if these incumbents have anything to worry about. Top two calls for discipline on both parties, on the part of both parties. It goes back to my comment about the statewide for Republicans, but the same holds in these congressional seats. You've got to clear the field, folks, and allow one person to run or... Or not. Or not. And <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Of course. Right. Um, so to go back to national, and then we're, we'll have a couple other California-specific questions in a minute. But we're looking at, you know, Donald Trump has... has as we framed it in the invitation here, right? His flirtation with white nationalism. Um, does that threaten to taint the party of Lincoln and permanently alienate those younger voters that we've talked about and the diverse generations of Americans who are potentially going to join the Republican Party for these economic reasons? All right, we'll let the black girl answer the question. <laughs> um, I think that's the problem with young, I think that's why his disapproval rating is so low with young voters. And I shared this with the group. I've got four adult sons. I'm a Republican. My husband was a Democrat for many years. We're the split family now. I've got two Republican sons, one declined his state, and one Democrat. Um, so I did my job. Um, <laughs> I won, as I like to say to folks. 
all four are turned off by the rhetoric. That's not a partisan issue that goes to any number of things. They're, they're turned off by the rhetoric. And I think that's going to be a challenge in the long run. I think that's why the disapproval rating is so low. Not to be cynical, but if um, flirting with white nationalism would cause the death of one of the major national parties, then both of them would already be dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because both parties have had that experience mm -hmm. of high-level people who, who harbored white right. racist views. So that's one way to answer the question. Another way to look at it is that um, when Hillary Clinton made her basket of deplorables remark in late, I think that was late September, early October, it was instantly regarded by her own campaign team as a gaffe. And you know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the group that really embraced that designation are, is the group that we all now refer to as the alt-right. Um, but my point is that the idea that there was some sort of thing going on there was known to voters when they entered the voting booth in November of 2016 and it, Donald Trump still got elected. So I, I don't look at this and think, well, oh, you know, the party's going to die because of that. If it were going to, it already would have happened. And it goes back to your point about the base being so solid. Yeah, and look, I think, first of all, I, no, I don't think it's helpful. And I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying, and it, it, that's, mm -hmm. I think, a, an accurate perspective mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. The other is, look, the, the demographic, this, is, this will be the first generation of Americans uh, that is of majority white European descent that is leaving America to a majority non white European descent. And that, that change for any society is going to be extraordinarily disruptive. What I believe we're beginning to see is the first signs of whites, particularly poor, non-college educated white folks, beginning to uh, behave like an aggrieved racial minority. Okay? To vote tribally. To vote tribally, in large part, correct, but also to, to publicly feel it's okay to verbalize mm -hmm. and express that sentiment is my life is not good. My opportunities are not good. And I believe systemically that the system is working against me. We've never experienced that in this country before. And it's not at all a justification. It's a warning to all of us to look at, at each other as, as people and begin to address those problems. Because if we do not, the one thing I do know is that situation has never ended well in the course of human history. Mm -hmm. So we need to be mindful, and that, that is the beginnings of what I'm, I, I'm seeing. And I think it's going to continue for a generation, especially when we leave politics up to the politicians, right? Because they're going to do what they're going to do with it, and that's, that's a dangerous place to be. So if you're right about that, and then we've got social communities of people that all agree with us, and you're saying that we're also moving or living in communities where people tend to agree with us, all right. It feeds into that. It feeds it. Yeah. Okay. So if alien beings landed in LA and came up and said, hey, explain your system of government to me. It looks like you have two major parties. What does the Republican Party stand for? Um, and you had to sum that up like in a sentence because they're really short on time. You definitely get that one. <laughs> <laughs> it stands for not being the Democratic Party. Yeah, in large part. 
And, and, and vice versa. I'm, you, you, it may not be comfortable for people to hear, that is the driving motivator behind a large swath, I would dare say a majority of the voters that are showing up. And if you don't believe that, look at the remarkable change that both parties are willing to adopt in order to adapt to prevent the other party from taking control. We've created a situation where it's a sporting event. It's not a political engagement. And you'd rather have the Dodgers beat the Giants at all costs than actually realize that this is a baseball game. I mean, if you would have told me a year ago that the approval ratings amongst the Republican base for Russia would be in the 60s, I would tell you you were crazy. Okay? That tells you how deep that sentiment is. And if you think that that is the province of the Republican Party, you are sadly, sorely mistaken. It is driving both parties, and it will continue to do so. The Democratic Party came within six, eight points of electing a man who was not even a Democrat a few months before he decided to run and give, clearly gives no credence to the Democratic Party. And frankly, it's pretty clear would like to see it split up. Okay? So it's not a Republican thing. That's, that's my message here, is we are seeing something transformative in the two-party system. Both sides are not even going right or left. It's a top-down sentiment. Our politics are no longer on the right or left scale. It's, it's about populism. It's about people who feel they've got a stake in society and people who do not. And that is crossing the typical Republican and Democrat red-blues construct. I'll, I'll go back to the economy and just say, if yeah. you look at the distribution of income, yeah. particularly in these last 15 years, that's no surprise, is that's it? That's driving it. So one thing we haven't touched on, and we are um, about to transition to questions, but I've got two more. Um, so we'll quickly touch on what's happening in Sacramento right now, because it is really interesting. You have, <laughs> you have we call them all. a <laughs> proposal from a Democratic governor, embraced by Democratic leaders, that only became law because of Republicans helping, right? The, mm -hmm. the, well, that's not accurate. It, it passed by a big majority that protects it from lawsuits. The cap-and-trade program, which is California's kind of signature climate change initiative, was able to be extended thanks to the Assembly Republican leader and a handful of other Republicans. Um, and now he's, you know, in some hot water, but some people are holding him up as a champion for bipartisanship on an issue of the environment, which we've seen Republicans champion many times over the years. Arnold Schwarzenegger made this one of his signature issues. Um, how is the California Republican different on this issue? Uh, does that portend well for future compromise? Was it a mistake for the Republican Party because the politics are messy? That's Cassandra, you've got to answer this one. You're so yeah. mean. <laughs> so that could, this could be 20 minutes of just the, the circus that that led to. So two, sort of two schools of thought. First school of thought was that it was the right thing for him to do. And, you know, I would argue that, back to my point about a candidate that's marketable, Republican candidate marketable for a statewide race, someone who's viewed as, by voters as, as someone who's willing to work across the aisle is probably going to get a little support from independent voters, which is, is sort of a sweet spot. So some of us thought, I put myself in this camp, it was probably the right thing to do because that's how government really should work. The other side thought that it was completely irresponsible of this leader to put up or have his members put up votes, caucus members put up votes before Democrats did. And that those Democrats are now able to run on the fact that they did not vote for higher taxes um, in districts that are probably going to be pretty competitive. Um, the uh, two national Republican committee persons have weighed in. 
and asked for not only his resignation, but for him to resign, not as only his resignation as leader, but for him to resign his seat. Right. Um, the, the, you know, I've gotten calls from folks who are in an uproar. Uh, it, it has gotten very, very ugly and very, very testy very quickly. The picture um, that's on the top of the letter from those two folks has Chad Mays, the Republican leader, sitting with Governor Brown and the, the two Democratic leaders, and that's sort of the, you know, this is why you should be angry. And so we've decided, my, our party has decided that in California, you can only be a conservative Republican. You can only be anti-tax. You can only sort of vote the party platform. And while I think it means that we hold congressional seats, I don't think it, it bodes well for our ability to win elections statewide. And, um, and I'm frankly disappointed. I'm going to agree with all of that, but I'm, I'm going to add a little bit of context to the, the, the previous point that I made, because this last month in Sacramento, I think, has, has made the point very lucidly clear. As Cassandra just pointed out, there, we have a Republican leader who dared to, to work and bring other members to work with the, the Democrats on an environmental bill, and um, is, there's a serious threat to his leadership as a result. In other words, you're going to be punished for working across party lines. Uh, that is a sign of the more extreme activist element of the party taking control. Be mindful of this. Three weeks prior, the Speaker of the Assembly, a Democratic member, is now under recall and was facing death threats and the most vicious, vicious social media attacks I've seen for having the gumption and the gall to delay a vote on single payer until next year. Something that he actually agreed with. Something he agrees with but wants to find the $400 billion to pay for it. Keep in mind, the whole state budget is $140 billion. This will cost $400 billion. But the fact that he's not willing to, to go down the road on this puts his own leadership in jeopardy. I mean, th that is frightening. And the fact that it's happening again on both sides at the same time is something that we need to, as Californians and as Americans, pay attention to. That's a good story. It is a great story, right? <laughs> Both sides are literally ripping down their own institutions. And they don't even know why. If you ask the, the average Republican voter what a cap and trade is, they've got no idea. Correct. If you ask the average Democratic voter how the, the, about uh, SB 562, they have absolutely no idea. And that, that's just where we're at. And so when, when, when the statement is made, I am this because I know I'm not that, it's absolutely true. It may trouble you when you hear about it, the other party, but it's your party too, regardless of which party you're in. Correct. When the establishments of both parties are behaving in the ways that you both described, then um, the political scene is ripe for disruptive candidates like Donald Trump. Correct. So if I were a disruptive kind of individual and I lived in California, I would be thinking about running for office next year. That's a, right. a good right. note. Okay, so just Arnold part two. Yeah, yeah. very quick lightning round, and then we're going to turn it over to the audience. 2020, will President Trump face a Republican primary challenger? I don't and think any so. Of you. I don't no. think so. I don't think the math is there to do it. I agree. And I think I think a year is a lifetime yeah. in, in politics, a month is now, and I think a month is a lifetime yeah. with this particular president. Yeah. And so I, I would not go that's, out on a limb on that one. That's a fair at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, excellent. Well, we're going to turn it over to questions, and um, we've got microphones here. I will just ask that if you have a question, please make sure it ends in a question mark. 
Hi, my name is Mark Jaffe. I loved your comment, Mike, about how the Republican Party is now a party of poor white folks. Yeah. But what I'm unable to reconcile is that with Republican tax policies and ostensibly even healthcare policies strongly favoring rich folks, why the poor white folks would be so attracted to the party. Yeah, the what's the matter with Kansas problem, right, is what it's generally called. Well, how can Kansas voters who are generally, you know, the, um, meet that demographic criteria, there's a book written on it saying, why are people voting against their own economic interests? The rejoinder to that is, what's the matter with Connecticut? Why are, the, why are white wealthy people willing to tax themselves when it's not in their financial interests, right? The answer is, it's a values proposition. That's what matters. And to look at it in simple economic terms is to dramatically under, under estimate where voters are at and, and the way they view their place in society. If people voted simply on their pocketbook, we would be having a very discussion, very different discussion right now. That is not why people uh, cast the, 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 their, their vote for their candidates of choice. Increasingly, and this, we've really seen this um, you know, uh, grow exponentially since the mid-1990s, is people are, are, are increasingly values voters. They want people who represent their values, not necessarily their economic interests, on both sides. Good question. As a Green Party member, I want to remind that we don't live in a two-party system. We live in a single-seat, winner-take-all system that promotes just two large parties that then hate each other, and we have the double hate that you've all been talking about. Yeah. So why isn't there more uh, discussion about moving to multi-seat districts with proportional representation, which would seem to provide the flexibility for the political realignment you're talking about instead of just fighting over these two dead carcasses? Hmm? <laughs> um, I will say there's probably plenty of hate for, for some of the other parties um, as well, but um, I think maybe that's a good question for you know, Leslie. There is an increasing dialogue of, um, among people who look at the election results we've been getting and, and thinking there must be a better way. By what, what they mean by a better way is an election system that leads to a you know, different kind of result. And the one that you mentioned is one of them, ranked choice voting. So I actually think you're going to see some of those proposals um, make it through state legislatures next year, maybe get on some statewide ballots, ranked choice voting one on a statewide ballot in Maine in uh, November of 2016. Um, but So those are really interesting. I hope that Americans learn more about those systems. They all sound so European, which, you know, Americans are like, oh, it sounds like a European thing. But um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the change when it comes that way comes slowly. Um, and it's the, we're, so we're, we're going to have the kind of politics we have right now for at least a couple more decades, even if those reforms go as well as they possibly could. And I would argue in California that could only happen if it was on the ballot, mm -hmm. which would mean a, a grassroots movement of some kind that was well, well funded. Because as you all know, people in power don't like to give up power, and that would never get through a legislature, in my opinion. Yeah. Hi, uh, Dave Gutman. And... Other than the self-selection thing that Mike talked about, isn't it also that you talked about the Republicans having the, both the state house and the governorship in a lot of states where they voted, put in uh, voter suppression things and gerrymandered districts. So you created safe districts where basically winning the primary, whichever party you happen to be in, tends to get you elected to the seat leading to more uh, the hard right and the hard left. Uh, well, without a doubt, the Republicans in the states did a brilliant job after the 2010 census. So the, and you know, Barack Obama is devoting his time right now to trying to figure out a way to 
cause it so that after the 2020 census, it's not that devastating to Democrats. Um, but that's going to be a tough uphill battle. Well, and it's important to remember, too, that the 2010 Tea Party election that brought in that wave, that's where a lot of that, those legislators, legislatures started to flip. That's the sort of elections have consequences. People stay home and they don't care about politics. They hate Washington. But like if they care about what's happening in their districts that are being drawn in their states, that's happening at the legislative level, that election. Let me, uh, I, if, if you're genuinely interested in, in, in this, you know, this topic, and because this is getting a lot of coverage lately, and, I, and I'm going to challenge you on some of the language you used. There is a book called The, the Big Sort. It was written in 2008 by a very progressive author. The argument was trying to figure out if it redistricting is what is driving these representation challenges or if there are bigger societal issues. His ultimate um, answer was it's, it's far more has to do with societal issues than, than manipulating gerrymandered lines. What concerns me about, there's, there's two words being thrown out from opposite sides of the aisle and they are deeply troubling to me. One is Republicans talk a lot about voter fraud, okay? That's a myth, okay? The liberals talk about voter suppression, equally a myth, okay? And I, there's data to quantify all this, and I'm happy to talk about it as a practitioner. And when you hear that emotional exchange, it's because what it's designed to do is rip at the integrity of our system. So when we can take a look at, at at African-American voters, right, who were suppressed in North Carolina, I think was the argument. There's, there's no differential between where African-American voters voted anywhere in the country, okay? So if California, which has the lowest voter turnout with ethnic minorities in the country, a state overwhelmingly dominated by Democrats, where Republicans really don't even go through precincts, what is explaining that? And I think when you look at it objectively, you have, to, you have to remove yourself and say, what does the data tell us? And how do we stop, how do we stop this, this, this accusation that illegal immigrants are voting and, and dead people are voting and people are trying to stop people from voting? It's, 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 it's frightening. Our Secretary of State agrees with you. I talk to him all the time. Good Democrat, good Republican, we're able to have rational conversations and he will say the exact same thing. He has been saying the exact same thing on Twitter and Facebook for okay. weeks. Hello, my name is Stuart Davenport. I teach history at Pepperdine University. Thank That's you. a cool job. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I feel very lucky to be teaching history in Malibu, yes. Um, uh, I have two questions, one about the past, one about the future. Um, my question about the past is, in trying to understand the last 10, 15 years, here's the shortest version that I can come up with as a storyteller. Uh, it's the, the age of Reagan is over, and the recession killed it. Um, so my first question is, would you agree with that? Many of you spoke about uh, economics, and my version is that the recession laid a sledgehammer to the, the Reaganite consensus that split it into the 17-person uh, clown car uh, that you were speaking of. Uh, my question for the future, um, if economics is not working, if we're uh, splitting into the haves and the have-nots, um, what happens to America when there's not an American dream? Hmm. Well, I think we're going to find out, actually, because I think we're going to have pockets of have-nottiness, uh, large pockets um, throughout the Rust Belt, um, and as other larger, broader economic forces make themselves felt even more so. 
So I, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. I also think California is a microcosm. We're the highest poverty rate in the nation. And we've got a boom going on on the coast, but our Central Valley, you know, literally almost from top to bottom, is, is not experiencing that same kind of growth. So I feel like this is another place where we're going to see a little bit of what happens here happening in the rest of the country. Hi, I'm Karen Leventhal from Los Angeles. So my question is, what are the paths to return to some kind of sanity? So we have both of the establishments in both parties losing ground, and who's gaining ground is typically the radical edges or the extremes of each party. So I, I'm trying to find a way that we come back to some sort of sanity, and I, I don't quite see it. I don't know if you guys can shed any light on how that happens. Well, I do agree if a disruptor came along, I mean, we sort of saw this with the recall, but I think this is completely different. I think if a disruptor came along, um, things could change very quickly. I, again, I wonder what my comrades here think. I'm also fascinated and still watching that non-party preference voter, that block continue, continue to expand slowly, and I wonder what happens when that reaches critical mass, those folks really vote, and then you get a few here and a few here and what that leads to. But again, it's gonna take a special candidate in a state like California because it's such an expensive place to run races. How about civic participation too, just in general, right? Like that makes mm. every society better. Yeah. And um, whether people are like doing it now because they're angry about President Trump or they were doing it before because they were angry about President Bush's immigration policy or, or whatever it is, like that helps people come together and have their voice heard. Um, that people forget all the time that they're the ones with the power, they're the ones that send their representatives to Washington. Yeah, I, I, I think the first thing we have to acknowledge is that uh, the, the system doesn't work for a rapidly growing segment of our society. And the way, we are, the way we talk to each other and the way we handle it is, is universally dysfunctional. And that's not going to solve the problem. It may make you feel good, but probably not. <laughs> uh, we, we are all in this together. And again, I don't think in, in a generation we're going to be saying, you know, Republicans and Democrats came to work together. I don't think we're going to view politics that way. I think we're really, under, we're really beginning to see the, a, a, tr a tremendous transformation of the way we're going to have to govern and live together. And I, what exactly that means or looks like, I don't know. I just know that the first part is accepting that it's not working. And the second part is being kind and being civil and, and being committed to finding uh, an answer. And the electorate has to insist on the kindness and the civility. It does. We have to. Uh, I'm Mike Senkoff, and my question is, uh, uh, what is your opinion of the influence of the Koch brothers' political machine on the Republican Party? I haven't heard that one in a while, the Koch brothers. I thought Trump kind of did away with them. Uh, look, I, they may have been ascended at one point, but they were. I think Trump kind of washed all of that away. I'm not saying it's gone away. I, what I what I see on both sides is is uh, it's essentially an oligarchy, right? You have the Koch brothers with huge money. You've got Soros. Adelson. Then you got Soros, and then you got Steyer. Yeah, Tom Steyer. You got billionaires who are manipulating the system. They're manipulating what we're watching. They're manipulating the way we feel about issues that aren't really issues. They're driving all of this, and it's we're, you know part of this is just it's it's symbolic of 
a dramatic separation of our society between those haves and have-nots. And it's not just the Koch brothers on the right, although that's a dynamic, it's equally problematic on the left. It's, it, you're talking about money in, in influencing the process. It's happening on both sides. And I can't, I was just gonna say, I can't give too much away, but actually the LA Times has a very soon forthcoming story looking at the Koch brothers and their influence um, in the next couple of days. So keep your eyes out for that yeah. timely question. One of the things that both left-wing billionaires and right-wing billionaires discovered about 10 years ago is that it would be possible to pull the party, the Republican Party in the case of the Kochs, or the Democratic Party in the case of Steyer and Soros and so forth. They discovered that by building a range of 501c3 and 501c4 organizations outside the party, that they could pull the party in the direct ideological direction that they wanted it to go. And I think that that has proven to be difficult and challenging for both parties because if you're a Republican, what's your job? It's to elect Republicans. If you're a Democrat, what's your job? It's to elect Democrats. But <clears throat> because of this vast apparatus of infrastructure outside the organized political parties, um, wealthy people are able to exert um, on both sides and, and more ideological pull than used to be the case. My name is Arthur Flores. I'm from Cerritos. And um, no one's mentioned a uh, situation happened in France. You had uh, two parties, right-wing, left-wing, people very unhappy with, and you had essentially Emmanuel Macron come out of nowhere and um, not only win the presidency, but you know, win pretty much the majority of, of you know, their, um, their version of Congress. Do you see something like that happening here in the next, I know you said that in the next 10 years, looking back, the two parties can be completely different. Is that possible to happen here, or are we institutionally too much of a two-party system? I think institutionally it's very difficult, but I think we are at a breaking point. I think, I think you're starting to see the lug nuts come off and the wheels are starting to rattle. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing. I think that's what the Trump presidency to a large extent embodies, and I think that's part of the fracturing of the Democratic Party that you're seeing at both the national and the state level, is, uh, very clearly. The, the, um, so look, I don't know that it's going to go to a European model. I'm not suggesting it's not. I think the questions that are being asked are the right ones. We don't know. All I do know, or I'm very strongly convicted, is what we see right now is not what we're going to be seeing in the, in the medium to short-term future. And half his cabinet for women. Just thought I'd add. Yeah, that's a good question. That's all the time we have. Um, before we end, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to thank the Japanese American National Museum for hosting Zocalo in their beautiful space. And of course, let's give our amazing panelists a round of applause. <laughs>